This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. One part of the second story writing process that I love is going back to the people involved in my stories and comparing my recollections with theirs, turning to my partner or calling my family and asking them what they were doing in between the moments of my life I was actually a part of. In this week's story, we're lucky to have a story from two parents, Jeff and Yolanda Sivak, and their daughter, Lauren Sivak. This trio shares a pivotal moment from Lauren's childhood where all three of them fought a family battle together. Recorded live at Steppenwolf in Chicago in September 2023, Second Story is proud to present To Be Loved. realize I was gay until I was 16. We We already knew. knew. (laughs) Hobart High School produced a play every fall and a musical every spring. In my sophomore year, I was an honor roll student and an athlete. Acting had never crossed my mind. One August evening, my dad picks me up from golf practice. How was school? Fine. They announced the fall play, something named Harvey. Harvey? I love that movie. Oh my gosh. That's one of my all-time favorites. You have to audition. Dad, I don't even know what it's about. It's about an imaginary rabbit. Jimmy Stewart was in it. My dad tracks down a VHS copy of the original Harvey. We watch it and and I start to get excited about the prospect of acting. I practice an old lady voice because even though I'm 15 and I'm auditioning for my first play, my dad and I both know that I'm a character actor and not an ingenue. (laughs) I get cast as the cab driver. (sighs) Lou was always a performer. When Lou was eight, her favorite actor was Jean-Claude Van Damme. Her favorite movie was Kickboxer. There is a dance scene in Kickboxer that she learned and practiced in the family room over and over again. And she was always looking for an audience. One year, we were at Camp Seekit, where our family camped every summer. We pulled into the campground and drive down the long steep hill to our site, where our 1964 frolic a tiny egg-shaped camper sat parked throughout the year. And one Saturday evening, Lou found her audience. Look at Lou, I yelled at Lonnie. I look over and there's Lou dancing in the middle of a group of campers, mostly women in their 60s and 70s, (laughs) doing all the moves from Kickboxer, even the splits. One of the older women was videotaping Lou. I just had to record this, she said. Someday she'll be famous. Even at a young age, Lou was enchanting. In Harvey, my character only showed up in the last 15 minutes of the play. 
Every afternoon, I'd run from practice to rehearsal, say my few lines, and run back to practice, never attending a full rehearsal until tech. That's when I met the rest of the cast, the juniors and seniors who I would soon idolize, and Natalie. <laughs> a fellow sophomore who was in charge of hair and makeup. Natalie was shorter than me with long curly hair and big brown eyes, red lips and perfect eyeliner. Her job, make the cast look as good on stage as she looked backstage. And Natalie looked good. Flanked by mirrors and round bright bulbs, I sit in the dressing room waiting for Natalie to apply my eyeliner. On the first day of tech, I was hopeless. Now. It's opening night, and I tuck my long hair under a bowler cap and await in my gray slacks, white shirt, and suspenders until Natalie is ready for me. Look up, she says, as she stands over me. Try not to blink. She leans in, and I inhale. My eyes start to water. Don't cry, it'll run. She lays her left hand on my cheek, red lips pursed. She leans closer and moves her right hand in quick movements. There, all done. As parents, we have always celebrated our children's happiness. We want Lou to feel what every other teenager gets to feel. Everyone falls in love. Everyone has a first kiss. I want my children to be loved and no love. When the play ended, Natalie and I got close. <laughs> Unexpectedly, and wonderfully, and painfully close. <laughs> On my 16th birthday, my parents gave me a little red two-door Chevy that I named Shelly. I would fill up my tank with the change I found in my cup holders, blast the Rocky Horror Picture Show, because I guess I was now a theater geek. <laughs> and I would drive Natalie to and from school, rehearsals, each other's houses. I drive Natalie everywhere, and in return, she holds my hand. Even from the back seat while she also holds her boyfriends. <laughs> Sitting behind the driver's seat, she holds his hand with her right, but her left, she sneaks it underneath her coat between the driver's side door and seat to hold my hand. I crack jokes with her boyfriend while I grip her hand tighter. She spends the night, as friends often do, but every night we cuddle without acknowledgement. She runs her fingers up my arm, over my shoulders, through my hair. It's slow and deliberate and not at all like the fumbling fingers of boyfriends. She curls into me when we sleep. All friends do this. I say to myself as I smell her hair, the scent of hope from Gap fills my nose. I memorize the way her body feels against mine because I don't know if it will happen again. We're friends, just friends. I convince myself to save myself. Everyone falls in love. And now winter has turned to spring and it is April and everything feels new and bright and possible and we have been cuddling for months. 
I am pretty certain my other friends are not spooning when they stay over at each other's houses. <laughs> like every other Saturday night, I am staying over at Natalie's house. It's late and we crawl onto her bed and she puts on Face Off with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Our shoulders touch as the opening sequence starts. Then Natalie rolls her body to face mine and pulls me in. Okay, uh, mom, dad, can you pretend not to listen? I just don't think I can say this next part with you two right here. Okay, okay Lou. Lou. The room is dark. Natalie's eyes are intense, her face lit by the blue TV haze. Let's see how long you can sit still, she whispers. Natalie lifts my t-shirt and draws circles on the small of my back. I mirror her movements. Our hands are everywhere, warm breath filling the space between her lips and mine. In the background, John Travolta is undergoing surgery to put Nicolas Cage's face on his. Is this what you want? She asks. I'm afraid I'll be bad at this. Our lips lock. Everyone has a first kiss, and this was Lou's. At the beginning of their junior year, it became obvious that something was happening between Lou and Natalie. Lou told us they were just friends, but we suspected differently. We had seen them cuddling downstairs in the family room. <laughs> when Lou finally confirmed that they were a couple, we had to decide if they could continue their sleepovers. The fact that they were in a relationship changed everything. We have to set boundaries, Jeff. Angela never had sleepovers, I said, referring to our oldest daughter. So whatever decision we make will determine sleepovers for all our children. I was terrified. I begged my parents, please, we have nowhere else to be a couple. No one knows at school alone is the only place we can be girlfriends. This put us in a tough place. Jeff, if this is the only place they feel safe, we have to let Natalie stay over. Lonnie and I have always been a united front when it came to our children. We made all the decisions together. Lou, your father and I have decided that you can continue your sleepovers with Natalie. As long as the door stays open and you don't lie to us anymore. One night in the middle of our junior year, a year after I auditioned for Harvey and seven months after our first kiss, I'm lying on Natalie's bed and she begins to tickle me, trying to pin me. We're rolling around laughing, tickling each other when her mother walks in. We freeze. Norma is stern, cold. Natalie, may I talk to you? Natalie leaves and I sit on the bed agonizing for her to return. She didn't catch us actually doing anything. I say over and over. Natalie doesn't return for 20 minutes. What happened? She wanted to know if something was going on between us. Well, what did you say? I said nothing, of course, that we're just friends. Did she believe you? I think so. That night, I sleep on the floor, too afraid to sleep next to Natalie, afraid that her mother will come back. Jeff and I met Norma the previous school year when the girls were in the spring musical, Hello, Dolly. I told her how much I liked Natalie, and she said she adored my Lou. Oh, how things were about to change. 
We don't talk until we are back at school on Monday. It is tense and awkward, but we are both hopeful. But when Natalie gets home from school that afternoon, her room is ransacked, her journal and all her notes missing. The next day, Norma marches Natalie to school and then to first period. Natalie doesn't stop at our locker to get her books. On Wednesday, her mother circles my car when I arrive at school and then waits for me after school to make sure Natalie and I are not secretly meeting. Her mother does this every day until I finally tell my mom. I was furious. No adult is allowed to intimidate a teenager, let alone one of my kids. If someone has a problem with one of my children, they should come to me first, not stalk them. You don't mess with our kids. <laughs> That week, out of sheer luck, I saw Norma coming out of the grocery store when I was pulling in. I followed her for 25 minutes. I'm sure she was terrified as I pulled into the gas station behind her. And you don't mess with Lonnie. I put my car in park and I march over as she rolls her window down. She was too scared to even get out of the car. <laughs> if you continue to harass my daughter, I will have a restraining order placed on you. I say to her, I wish I could have pulled her through that window. <laughs> this conversation should happen between parents, she says to me. So we schedule a meeting for us to meet with Norma and her husband at the end of the week. The night of the meeting, I hold myself up in my room. I'm hopeful that Norma will come around, that my parents can change her mind, and I'm scared that this is the end. I hear a knock at my door and it's my dad. Lou, can I talk to you? Yeah? I need you to give me all the notes that Natalie wrote you. <clears throat> I know you saved them. I promise I will not read them, but I need proof that the two of you were in a relationship. Norma is going to make this out to be one-sided. I promise I won't let that happen to you. My dad leaves and I unlock my waterproof, fireproof safe. <laughs> Next to my Elvis stamps and my grandma's pearl necklace are dozens and dozens of notes from Natalie. I unfold and reread and refold each note, tears welling. I bind them with a sturdy rubber band and give them to my dad. Promise you won't read them. <clears throat> I promise. Lou gave us detailed directions to Natalie's house, and I called Norma to let her know that we were on our way. They had a home in Hobart where we lived, but Norma wanted the meeting to be in Chesterton at the home of Natalie's stepfather. As we drove down Old Ridge Road, I was playing out in my mind what was going to happen. It took a half hour to get there. It was December and cold. As we pulled up to their house, they were already standing outside at the end of their driveway. My daughter's not gay. Norma started as soon as we stepped out of the car. Lauren started the whole thing. She's trying to make Natalie gay. If Lauren doesn't leave her alone, I will call the police. <clears throat> this conversation was ridiculous. Nothing that Lou and Natalie had done was criminal. It was young love. Norma was so narrow-minded that she could not see the relationship was making her daughter happy. 
You better stop stalking and harassing my daughter, I yelled back. It was clear that John, Natalie's stepfather, had no idea how quickly the situation would escalate. He tried to be the voice of reason. Can we just agree to let this go that the girls will leave each other alone? You can separate these two, but you can't change the way they feel about each other. The rest of the conversation was brief. Nobody was willing to budge. There was nothing Norma could say to make us believe that Lou had done anything wrong. My parents are gone for the longest hour of my teenage life. I'm nauseous and sticky like syrup stuck to the counter. I listen to Come What May from the Moulin Rouge soundtrack over and over. When I hear them pull into the driveway, I run down the stairs to meet them in the living room. My dad hands me my notes, still folded together and bound with the rubber band. Lou, I am so sorry. Norma is transferring Natalie at the end of the semester. I am devastated. I know my feet are on the carpet, but I can no longer feel the floor. It would be years before I would feel the full impact of what happened. Something big had been taken away from me, but something even bigger, even greater, was given to me. There are moments in our lives when a relationship is tested, when you realize what a person is capable of, when you realize who you can depend on. All we have ever wanted is for our children to be loved and to know love. And I know I am loved by you. This story was produced by Ali Drum, curated by Amanda Delheimer, and directed by Jess Hutchinson. Music was by Lynette Lee, and sound engineering was by Matt Chapman. The Second Story Podcast is produced by Max Spitz. To be the first to hear about updates and new episodes, sign up for our podcast listserv at 2ndstory.com backslash podcast, or subscribe to the Second Story Podcast on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the Arts Work Fund, Walter Foundation, MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, our Grothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, James Lupo, Jessica Wetmore, Hannah and George Stowe, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.